in the same way that I really didn't have a right to go run a sales team at Facebook coming out of the investment industry, I really didn't have the right to go build and lead software sales teams having sold ads, which the trade-off was basically going from running effectively feel large enterprise organizations working with some of our largest customers at a reputable company like Facebook and going back and running SDRs and inside for a software company named after a random animal uh, that my mom still asks me about why I made the change uh, to do. Today, we're talking to Rich Liu, CRO of Everlog. Rich Liu's philosophy for growing sales at five unicorn companies has been surprisingly simple. Build the sales process around helping the customer achieve their business outcomes. Welcome to Grow and Tell, the show where we tell the growth stories of the revenue leaders behind successful companies. I'm your host, Alex Krakow. Rich Liu has led revenue teams at some of the most legendary companies in Silicon Valley. He helped grow Facebook's ad business to $400 million in revenue. He led sales at MuleSoft to a successful IPO and acquisition by Salesforce. He scaled revenue by over 10 times at TripActions. And now he's the CRO of Everlaw, a platform that simplifies complex legal work. In this episode, we'll talk about the importance of segmenting go-to-market teams, how to hire a sales team at scale, and why outcome-based selling is critical in a tough market. I hope you enjoyed the episode. So I'd love to start with your time at Meta, which was Facebook when you joined. And I think you joined as like the group director for global marketing solutions. Like, how did you get that job? And, and sort of what was the role when you first started? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I often wonder how I got that job myself. I started my training as an engineer, spent about eight years in financial services, building out sales, operations, services teams. But I really wanted to break into tech and I loved Facebook as a user and I had no idea how to convince them to hire me for a sales or um, customer facing account management success role. So I basically figured out, oh, there's a big project that they're leading around segmenting and tiering the ads business. And this was one of the first times they were doing this restructuring of the business org. And I had been at this investment shop while it was scaling from about 300 people to, gosh, maybe 1,500, a couple thousand. And based on my experience there, I had a lot of just stories to tell about how I had helped bring different innovations into the sales team. How do we restructure the hours of an inside sales team so they're maximizing time when they're going to reach people on the phone based on the data we have? How do we restructure sales support so we're regionalizing reps, regionalizing support versus doing one-to-one? How do we go recut how we distribute inbound leads or appointments set to people to minimize drive times? Like all these kinds of things that I was able to convince them that I could help solve and drive some of these projects around segmentation. So that was really my first job there. Going in, helping to lead a cross-functional project to basically decide what are the guardrails between what is field sales, sort of inside-outside sales versus online sales? How do we define what gets what treatment? bringing together all the teams in the different segments and the different functions to go implement this different strategy for how we were going to cover um, our accounts. And so that was really my foot in the door that led to um, running account management teams and later sales teams. And was that something you advocated or were you sort of hired to do that specifically? And like Cheryl Sandberg was like, all right, we need a restructure and sort of split up the business in this way. Or how did that all, all work? Yeah, funny enough, um, my my wife had worked in Cheryl and uh, David Fisher's org at Google way back in earlier years. And so I managed to finagle an introduction that was bounced around across Cheryl to David to to Grady Burnett. And and it was sort of one of those like true startup stories where you're like, hey, you've talked to a bunch of people. You seem like you got a good head on your shoulders. We can't hire you to go run sales teams because we can easily go hire 50 of you out of Google to go run ad sales teams why don't you come in and we'll figure it out. And uh, so I remember uh, Alexa Pope was my hiring manager and another ex-Googler. And she brought me in and basically said, well, we have this project. Can you just help drive it for the next few months? And then we'll see what happens. And so basically, I was just excited to get my foot in the door and work across the aisle. And I said, great, like, send that shit to me. We'll figure out what happens. And, and that was really it, right? So sort of that classic, when you were able to find a rocket ship, as Cheryl says, find the whatever seat you can get and uh, and go from there. 
And like, what was Facebook like at the time? Because it was pre-IPO, right? So, and still just trying to figure out a business model, right? There was clearly like insane growth on the consumer side, but I, you were trying to figure out, okay, how do we actually make this go to market? How do we actually make money from all the growth, right? Yeah, no, I, I came in 2010. And so at the time there were already, gosh, maybe 1,500, over a thousand employees easily. And there was already an ads business there. At the time, it was very, um, you know, the biggest advertisers weren't P&G or Nike or Walmart. It was like Zynga and Groupon and some of these dating advertisers. So it's not the sort of world-class, you know, brand platform that we think about today. It was actually driving a lot of game installs and app downloads. And that was actually where the, the meat and potatoes were. And so you know, at the time we were really looking to sort of legitimize social media and eventually mobile as places where advertisers needed to spend their TV dollars, not the test dollars or, you know, a couple thousand dollars here and there. And that was really a lot of the big journey that we were on as an advertising platform, as a publisher to legitimize it as, you know, not just the like test thing, right? Moving from sort of early adopters to the mainstream of marketing. And that was really the four years I was there. And so it was a really cool adventure and experience to be able to see how we were able to, to drive that transition and how people thought and drive adoption so that we wouldn't get left out of CMO's offices, but they would actually be looking to work with us. Really interesting. And I think you were like, you were, I don't know if you were responsible for, but you sort of ran Facebook's go to market for like the 2012 US presidential election. And I think that was, that was that really famous election where Obama obviously won for the second time, but it was famous for like using digital channels to kind of mobilize online communities. Like what was that like building up the kind of political book of business for Facebook? First of all, I'm I'm not a a politics person, uh, not a DC person. And so that was a really eye-opening experience for me on a personal level, not just a professional level. But the manager on my team that that led that effort, AJ Tennant, who's now at Glean, by the way, awesome sales leader. We were sort of tasked with trying to figure out, okay, in the 2008 election, we had like 0% of online ad spend. It was sort of an experimental platform. Now in 2012, Facebook was very much in the mainstream. How do we go from basically having a fledgling team that was sort of servicing some of these emerging advertisers, the campaigns, the super PACs, the different organizations, as quickly as possible, spooling up in order to capture as much of the online ad spend uh, as we could during the election? And so, you know, it was very much that startup within a, in, in a larger company mindset of, all right, we have this objective, we have a limited amount of time, what do we do? And so, Huge credit to, to AJ and that sales leadership team and, and success leadership team working closely with Marty Levine, Joel Kaplan's public policy sort of DC folks, just surrounding and figuring out, all right, well, let's take a look at this election cycle. We have like a year, year and a half to go after it. Who are going to be the biggest spenders, right? The campaigns themselves, Romney, Obama, and, and obviously the smaller folks that didn't make it to the final. The outside spending, the different organizations, Let's figure out how we want to staff those orgs from a high-touch mode embedded at Obama for America offices in Chicago, right? Where are we going to support them in more of a sort of slightly more scaled model? And where are we going to play the inbound game of, okay, let's see how many of these state races, these down-ballot races we can capture through a broader sort of classical like inbound online sales model. And so we put together a team in what was probably the course of a few short months to really tackle, you know, you have to segment the right and left wing because we don't want the same folks servicing both sides for trust reasons and also sort of privacy reasons, right? We got a, a segment between sort of size of account and potential size of account and how much touch we would put on them. We had to segment between the end customers and their digital agencies or ad agencies and figure out how we were going to cover those. And what were the collection of people who knew politics and who knew the campaigns and the people that actually know advertising and know digital and know social media and trying to construct a high-functioning team that would actually work across all those different aisles. But you know, we were able to go from capturing less than 1% of digital ad spend in the 08 election to uh, something about 20% of digital ad spend in the 2012 election. So it was a really cool win of how the team came together really quickly, really solved for, let's forget the functional lines, let's forget the department lines, and just put together an effort to go capture this thing. It was a really cool story. Obviously, at that time, we were a little dense to some of the, the broader issues that 
reposed around bad actors and the ways that they could exploit um, the algorithm in Facebook. So I, I, I don't talk about that era too much, but at the time there were some really cool stories about how we helped people find their voice. And, um, and obviously looking back, it's a little more complex of the history. Yeah. But it's a great story when it comes to just go-to-market segmentation and focusing on specific segments. Because if you didn't sort of wake up and think, all right, there's a business when it comes to political ad spend, I don't think you would have, you know, if you didn't structure the team in that way, you wouldn't have captured that opportunity. And you can kind of see that story as you go through different industries, whether it's the automotive industry or just going to convince, you know, B2B companies to start spending money on Facebook. So yeah. So I mean, I know like when he's at Lattice in the early days, like segmentation was huge for us when it was just like SMB versus mid-market and, uh, you know, enterprise. So yeah, that's a good, Dini on recently to, to share some of those early lattice stories. So really awesome to hear how, how, how you all approached it in the early days, because you've got to start somewhere and it's always a matter of trying to figure out, you know, do we go industry first or region first or size first or, and which of those are going to cut from first. Right. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. And so move fast and break things is obviously like the famous motto at Facebook. Everyone knows that one. Did you have like a favorite experiment that you ran during your time at Facebook? Was there uh, anything yeah, that stuck absolutely. out? Oh, so, so many. And, and the funny part about that one was, you know, in the early days, it was sort of this radical, like, don't be afraid to break things, which um, I, I, I mentioned in a, in a recent podcast around how that was a really empowering culture, right? Of like, you don't have to be a senior leader. You don't have to be a, some kind of department head or manager to just come up with good ideas and execute against them. And I really just love that era and that culture that I know Mark's working to bring back. You know, one of the interesting things is when, when we were doing this original segmentation exercise, it was, I still remember it was called ASTS. And it was about, ooh, you know, the classic thing would be, let's go get the biggest spenders and put them with the highest powered, most experienced sales and account management people, right? But in our industry, we realized, well, hold on, the most high powered or high spending advertisers and clients at the time weren't the PNGs and Walmarts and Nikes and fill in the blanks. They were the folks like Zynga and uh, Living Social or Groupon or some of these performance advertisers. And the classic thing would have been, okay, we'll put them with the you know high touch reps who are going to take the most care of them. Except when you think about traditional advertising, right? Those folks don't need a you know, really cool creative program. They don't need to go to Super Bowl games or being taken out to steak dinners. They needed great access to the platform. They needed optimization from account managers who knew how to go drive efficient installs of apps on the platform. And funny enough, we actually started realizing, hold on, it's not about putting the biggest advertisers just with the most experienced sales reps. Segmentation is not just about the dollars. It was about, ooh, what is the specialization of this mid-market or this sort of inside, outside, call it national sales org um, that was really good at working in certain core competencies that were not, you know, the traditional media sales reps. And so we actually decided to profile some of these accounts differently rather than just pure spend, uh, which in a lot of worlds is um, not what you would expect out of a segmentation exercise, right? And it ended up working really well because that team that had the specialization of how to optimize business, how to account manage, how to work across Facebook to the platform org, to the product org, to build the right ad units, to, to make sure they had the right API access, that team really unlocked the potential of those clients and those advertisers in a way that the classical ad sales rep simply wasn't going to be able to do. You know, so that was a really cool experiment that I think was well-founded. And obviously over time, you know, we had to be smart around, well, that served us well, but as we built more vertical expertise, as we built more industry expertise, to have the confidence to say, hey, you know what? We're going to go recut and resegment based off industries first, not based off of this like service level capabilities of the teams, because we wanted to push ourselves to build that expertise, to build that specialization of how different industries should be leveraging the platform. And so even before we truly had, this is the right narrative an automaker should be using on the platform, or this is the right narrative that a B2B software company like Salesforce should be using on the platform. As soon as we started having those semblances of expertise and learnings and best practices, we created a bold bet and said, let's go after this and see if we can segment and therefore challenge ourselves to build better vertical offerings, which I think ended up happening, but was really scary at the time, right? 
Yeah, it's an amazing story because I feel like for Facebook building up this go-to-market function, like the incentives are so aligned with the platform and the advertisers, right? The more the advertisers see success on the platform, the more money they're spent. And so it's really interesting to hear, okay, as you build up the expertise and you sort of educate the users, they get more results, so they spend more money and 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 it's a win-win for everybody. Everyone, they're happy they're acquiring more people. Facebook's happy because you're spending more ad dollars. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting story. So you were at Facebook during the IPO. And I remember at the IPO, there was a lot of question marks around whether Facebook could could sort of take advantage of the shift to mobile. I'm curious what it was like working at the company at the time. And how were you able to sort of take advantage of that shift in retrospect? Yeah, it, it felt scary at the time. It was like the classic, you know, we talk about the ups and downs of the startup roller coaster. And even though the company was several thousand people at the time, um, it was really scary. And it was scary because we had been a private company and I, for one, actually appreciated a lot of elements of the culture mark uh, created around competitiveness, around conquest and this mission that we're on and really enrolling the employees at the time to go work for something bigger and towards something bigger than just ourselves. Um, the idea of opening the world and connecting people. But at the time of the IPO, you know, we were so excited. We did this hackathon. We were shipping all sorts of stuff. We were up all night before the, the button press on Hacker Square. And I remember shortly thereafter, we all sort of thought, oh, the company's so great. We're going to go up and it's just going to be up and to the right. And sure enough, I think within the first day or two, yes, there was a trading glitch or whatnot. But quickly it went to, wow, the stock price is down by like a half or more. And all of a sudden, for all the good work we thought we were doing, it felt bad to be judged by the outside world. Of, hey, you might think you're amazing, but we think you're actually half as good as you say you are. And oh, by the way, you have this existential threat of, we don't believe that you can manage the shift to mobile that you yourself has said is inevitable where the future lives. And so all of a sudden, there was this delta between what we believed in ourselves and what the outside world saw in us. And so there was a real tough feeling, right? There were people that left. There were people that felt like, oh, wow, it doesn't feel like we're winning anymore. All of a sudden, maybe the, the shine has worn off. But real credit to Mark, um, Cheryl, the leadership team for acknowledging that and saying, you know what, we've heard that and we know what we're building. We do need to accelerate our mobile ads, our mobile monetization strategy, which was already there and already in motion. But that was something where we had to deliver against and we had to to ship the product against that. We had to keep the advertisers and, and clients engaged while we were doing that and find the appropriate level of selling the future and helping them build for the future that we knew was coming yet not lose patience because it wasn't there yet, right? And, and call us charlatans. And so there was this mix of like reaffirming commitment to, one, do you believe in the mission? Two, do you believe in the, the team's direction and the ability to ship? And three, do we believe in the future that we've said is going to happen of this massive drive to mobile and that's where the future is going to be won or lost is real? If so, then we need to be able to tune out the outsiders and be able to say, let's go take care of our business and go grow and then see what happens. I certainly know and have felt that feeling of hoping and believing most days, but certainly having that inside doubt. Sometimes we're out in front of the customer saying, yes, this is the world that will play out. Yes, this is why we believe in it. This is the product we're building. And yes, while we have a black eye in the stock market with our stock price, we firmly believe that we're building a quality product and quality business and you need to be on board. And it's funny that experiences like that really build camaraderie. They really build resilience. They really build commitment because everybody has looked inside and had to make that active decision to be a part of it, right? And to stay and, and actually carry that water forward. I love it. Thank you for sharing that story. And so after Facebook, you went to work at MuleSoft, which is a very different business than Facebook, right? It's, it's B2B, it's a technical product. Like, What made you make the switch to, to B2B? Yeah, I think the only similarity is probably they both had blue and white in the yeah. logo and it pretty much stops there. <laughs> when I went into Facebook, the, the goal was to break into tech. And if you don't work in tech, sometimes that, that word tech means so many things, right? It means some company that some investor or analyst has said is a tech company meaning they do something with technology or software or something or other. And I didn't know the difference really between like, like a publisher, like an ads online media company versus a software company versus SaaS. And I was actually very much of a neophyte. But over my time at Facebook, I started to realize partially by having the tech industry vertical as one of the teams that I work with and I, I work closely with, right? 
And as I started to learn about that industry, seeing, oh, there's consumer, there's B2B, there's hardware, there's software, there's infrastructure versus more sort of surface of the enterprise applications. And there were all these different flavors that started to emerge. But one thing was really clear was that a lot of what we think about when we say the tech industry isn't Facebook or Google or these consumer products that we use. It's actually a lot of B2B software and SaaS companies, right? Particularly as a go-to-market person, as a, an operator, a lot of building organizations to go drive, at the end of the day, distribution, whether it's online, sales-assisted, sales-led, mid-market, SMB selling or like enterprise, large enterprise selling, that tends to be B2B, right? Because most of the consumer platforms are really around you know, driving growth, driving adoption and driving a growth funnel to go get users and keep them engaged. And that's much more product led. And so for me, I started to realize, hold on, you know, if I want to build a career in tech, at some point, I think I need to learn sort of what is classically B2B software SaaS selling, because that's what actually a lot of tech go-to-market is rooted around. Now, in the same way that I really didn't have a right to go run a sales team at Facebook coming out of the investment industry, I really didn't have the right to go build and lead software sales teams having sold ads, which I know a lot of folks have referred to as like sales light, right? It's not sort of a, a, a classical med pick, challenger sales, documented sales process, repeat it time and again type of model might look a little more like account management at the mid-market and, and enterprise level. So I wanted to get that experience. I wanted to do it at a company that I thought could become something. And I wanted to do it with leaders that I thought I could learn from. And so um, that's how I found MuleSoft and, and Simon Parmet, Greg Schott, the leaders that I clicked with that I, were pretty experienced that I thought I could learn a lot from. And really, that was a chance to go report to the president of the company, get a chance to sit at the table and understand what, how it was being built and what sort of the DNA was. The trade-off was basically going from running effectively field large enterprise organizations, working with some of our largest uh, customers at a reputable company like Facebook, and going back and running SDRs and inside uh, for a software company named after a random animal uh, that my mom still asked me about why I made the change uh, to do. So, you know, with every one of these career decisions, there's always that sort of trade-off of like, okay, what am I consciously trying to get? And how do I make a decision that will solve for that? Even if I trade off some other things like, you know, in this, in this position, uh, a name brand of a really well-known company and the comfort and great perks and benefits and pay of, you know, a, a high-flying public company. So um, really it was with that, right? How do I learn B2B software selling? How do I get a chance to learn from strong leaders? And, you know, let's figure out where it goes from there. And, um, and fortunately, there were some good lessons learned. And so from my understanding of MuleSoft, like a big shift sort of for the sale was a more, it went from a more technical sale. And I think you try to push it towards one more focused on like business outcomes. Can you talk about kind of that shift in, in the sales process yeah. and that transition? So, so just as I shared about Facebook was sort of the era of trying to navigate the transition of an industry from, hey, online equals search and maybe some, you know, some fancy picture display to online should be social and online should be mobile. MuleSoft was navigating a separate transition, right? From a corporate IT standpoint, and what MuleSoft does, it's, it's an integration and API platform. So for example, if I'm connecting, you know, I've a, I'm a developer inside a corporate IT organization and I need to connect Salesforce and Workday, I can write custom code to connect it, or uh, maybe I can write, uh, bring on a platform like MuleSoft to connect the two things. Now, historically, the way that people would do it was oftentimes point-to-point code. I'm just going to connect things by writing custom code to connect systems. Our pitch was, well, hold on, you should have a platform for that because every time you connect it to the platform, you're not writing the spaghetti code that was brittle that you'll need to rewrite every time you swap one of the endpoints. Instead, you have a reusable set of, let's call it, tools that you can then pull off the shelf. Every time I'm Sutter Health and I need to build the next app for the next type of specialist, I can pull off client patient data, I can pull off you know, drug data, I could pull out location data and just easily pull out the shelf to build an app that can be shipped really quickly, right? So the transition was this industry going from on-prem to cloud, from consumerization of the IT world, dealing with more demands from their end customers to ship the next app, the next service, the next online ordering kiosk, if you're McDonald's, more quickly. 
And our world was trying to shift it from this technical solution that a developer would buy to, wait a second, there's actually a highly strategic framework that you need to construct your IT org, Ms. CIO or Mr. CIO, that we will help you navigate. And the way that the world is going, this is no longer just some tool that your developer needs. It's actually a platform that's going to help you develop and ship applications and projects way more quickly than ever before. And so that was sort of that shift that we were trying to navigate, actually up-leveling the sale to something that is solving a big business problem that is inevitable, that doesn't have other good solutions to it, to an economic buyer that actually controls large budgets, not a developer who picks up a tool for a project. And within that transition, we were also going from necessarily inbound to outbound, right? Because the inbound demand is people who know you for who you are, developers coming in, looking for a free or free open source or freemium type product to somebody who's looking for a business transformation platform, who's looking for thought leadership and IP that they can build and construct a, um, a new way of operating their IT org around. And so part of that was shaping, and I can't take credit for this, I was only part of this machine, shaping the narrative we have to be able to speak to the economic buyer with a true business value narrative that is quantifiable, that is in the terms of the things that they care mostly about, how they can ship IT delivery more quickly and more efficiently, um, and providing them a way to evaluate that, measure what the business impact they can expect from that is, and giving them a delivery model to go realize that. As we started to build that, it was about making sure every part of that organization, whether it's the marketing organization or the SDRs and BDRs to the sales reps across all segments, to the delivery teams downstream of the sale, were able to actually speak that language, prospect into those right folks with that language, actually sell to them in an effective and believable, credible way, and then go deliver the outcome that we sold to them. And that was the transition that I, a couple, two to three years to actually really get through the system and really helped us unlock a different level of sale and a different level of strategic engagement with these large enterprises. So. That was um, you know, really the learning there, right? Of going inside to outside and shifting from a tactical solution to something that really solves and drives business outcomes. And it worked, right? MuleSoft went on to get acquired by Salesforce for a ton of money. I forget the exact amount, but <laughs> and, and then the, uh, the team grew quite a bit, right? And I think, can you talk a little bit about MuleSoft's hiring process? Because I think, I mean, the company grew a lot and I think MuleSoft had a reputation for a really good hiring process. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about it? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to share about this. We were fortunate that I think the company grew from maybe about three, 400 people to, you know, similarly 1,500, 2,000 people during my, my years there. But I, I credit Greg Shaw for really giving me religion around what good hiring looks like. I had come out of Facebook. My, my wife was a longtime Googler. So I was very familiar with the sort of hiring philosophies and, and rigor that, that those companies had put on hiring. MuleSoft took it to another level, right? And on one hand, it's not simply the quality of candidates, but it's really designing a process that measures specifically what we need a role to do. Like, what are the outcomes we need to deliver? How do we measure those outcomes in terms of the metrics and qualitative outcomes that that role needs to drive? Then breaking that back to how many, what kind of skills and what kind of competencies that candidates need to possess to actually deliver on those outcomes well. Um, and then devising a way to measure for those skills and competencies in an effective and repeatable way that we can then scale across the org. And so we, we called it, um, I think, Hiring 2.0, which um, Leslie Kirch and Leslie Crow's um, team really helped partner with us to build. And basically it was that, right? How do we, instead, if I have a team that has the same role in London, in Sydney, in Singapore, in Atlanta, in SF, how do I make sure that that team is repeatedly driving really high quality candidates really repeatedly, no matter what office they're in? And so for every single role, we basically said, okay, let's go define out what are the competencies needed to do that role well? What are the jobs we need to deliver well against it? Let's go actually define those. Let's call it for AEs. It's you know, an enterprise AE, linear execution. Can they drive a sales process orchestrate across a lot of orgs, right? Are they compelling in the room? Uh, and can they lead an effective meeting, an effective PG call, an effective um, follow-through on an executive meeting, right? 
you know, in an SDR role, it might be coachability and, and high growth mindset and passion for sales because we're not just looking for recent college grads who are smart and capable, but they actually have to have a passion for going out there and mixing it up and searching for a career in sales. And as we start to define those metrics, we would basically, you know, I should share that we actually looked at some of our strongest hires historically and some of our weakest hires historically and tried to actually do some analysis to figure out, okay, what were the skill sets? What were the competencies? What were the backgrounds and prior track records that these folks have had so that we can actually inform this, not just by using our gut, but actually looking at what the data showed us and being able to map that back to the competencies and then actually figuring out how to evaluate them. And so when we think about evaluation, right, everybody talks about, okay, let's do an interview. Great. That's like 101. But how do you do an interview loop really well? Well, let's actually make sure that for each of those competencies, we're breaking each interview round to go measure for one or two of those competencies, not all of them, and prescribing the questions that you can use to precisely and repeatedly ask and know what a good answer looks like and a bad answer, right? So for example, for team player, right? You can say, okay, tell me about a, tell me about your biggest win. Great. All right. Tell me who was involved in that deal, right? Is it, do they talk about themselves? Do they talk about the team? Do they effectively break that out in their role versus others, right? What would you have done differently in that? Did you get any feedback? Making sure that those questions are really well framed and you know what types of answers look good for whether it's team player, whether it's growth mindset, whether it's how they run a process really soundly, making sure that those are really repeatable questions with follow-ons that ideally the same interviewer or a couple of interviewers are always doing so they become experts in vetting for that type of skill. But again, it's not just through the interviews, right? A lot of great salespeople, great go-to-market people might be great interviewers, but the reality is how do we actually understand how they would do the role, not just talk about it? Can you design an exercise that mimics a skill or skills that they would need to do in a role? If you're hiring an EA, you know, hey, can you walk me through this calendar and how would, what would you do with it? What would you prioritize? What questions would you ask? Right? If you get an email from somebody saying, hey, can I get some of Rich's time? How would you respond to that? What would you be looking for? How would you prioritize, right? If you need to plan an offsite um, for an executive team, what would you need to know and how would you look and what are the types of things that you might start to spec out for that? It's some kind of an exercise that really helps to demonstrate, hey, in an environment that looks sort of like what they're going to be doing, how would they actually perform in that and actually rating that with a rubric that you use every time, right? And then finally, references. And I know I've talked about this before in other venues, but you know, so often, you know, sometimes we do the reference call and it's like, yep, this dude, is Alex awesome? Jack Altman's going to say, Alex is awesome. But if I call Jack and I said, hey, you know, I really want to make sure that there's the right fit. And for Alex's sake, because we like him a lot. So the more candid you are with me, the better, right? Help me understand, you know, what are the areas of strength, but what are the areas that you are focusing on to grow? And, you know, what are the ways that you would coach me to go work with them well to make sure that we can set them up for success? Like, those types of questions that really help that reference feel like, ooh, if I answer and I blow, you know, some positivity up this interviewer's backside, it's actually not going to set the candidate who I like and trust up for success. That's really important to establish, right? And knowing that you actually care about that feedback, not just are there to check a box. That's really important. And obviously ring fencing those um, references to direct managers, not pick somebody who you work with who can say great things about you um, is really important as well if you don't have trusted back channels that obviously won't blow up the confidentiality of the candidacy. So just a few of the profile of like, uh, sorry, a few of the elements of that hiring 2.0 was, was making sure that you design well, you design the process well for, for vetting for what you need. And then finally, you actually have controls of people who are pushing back and creating that constructive tension so that the CEO, the CRO, the fill-in-the-blank executive needs to personally vet and inspect and actually sign off on that hire because he or she or they are confident that that person's going to be a 10Xer and raise the high water line, not the low water line of the order. 
I love I love your answer because it just describes how much pre work there is when it comes to to interviewing and hiring people. Just structuring the role and being really deliberate and thoughtful about or the structure around the entire interview process, and that sort of leads you to the right outcome rather than just being really good at asking specific specific questions to to the candidate. Um, oh, hundred percent. And again, it sounds heavy, right? It sounds like ah, we got to have a ton of time and a huge HR talent team to do it. You'd be surprised at how a little bit of thought, like spending an hour or two up front to design a, a proper interview loop and vetting process and a proper profile so that if you have recruiters, they know what you're looking for. If you have interviewers in your panel, they know what you're looking for. That alignment around what the role needs to be and what the right candidate looks like and how to vet for it, investing in that up front is so valuable in driving efficiency and effectiveness and making the right hire if you just put in like an hour or two up front. So you joined Trip Actions as a CRO after MuleSoft. And I think during your time at Trip Actions, a big part of that story was actually scaling the enterprise business. And I think it ended up accounting for like over 30% share of new business. You 3X the AS average sales price. Like, what was that transition moving up market? Because corporate travel, massive industry, a lot yeah. of competition, a lot of incumbents. Can you kind of talk through how that all went down? Yeah, it's um it's a it's a great question. And and again, you know, for me, MuleSoft was learning B2B sales and and sort of figuring out how that, you know, how to learn from people who've done it. And for me, I, I knew that to where my passion lied and I thought where my skill lied was was in trying to figure out go to market that was maybe a little more nimble and dynamic that versus what was mostly a large enterprise sale. At the time, Trip Actions was probably it was the earliest company I joined by a long shot probably only a few million run rate, less than a hundred employees, right? Maybe 80 employees. And they had a really good product, like beautiful product. It's like this consumery, it looks like Netflix for travel already, even at the time. It looks great now. It actually looked pretty good then. And where it was really effective was sort of this mid-market space where early adopters, you know, few hundred employee companies that had enough business travel where it mattered, but Maybe we're still nimble enough that they, they cared about the employee experience and not as much about the controls and the security. That was like a great sweet spot for where the early adopters were. When I joined, uh, Ariel Cohen, the, the CEO and founder, really had a vision. He said, you know what, Rich, we need to figure out how to get this thing as like the default for all travelers. And again, you, know, you walk into the old office with the stains on the carpet and you're like, wow, that's a, that's a long way from now. But I appreciated that that vision was always there, right? It's going to be everywhere. It's just a matter of time and in what order. And so with that mandate, it became, all right, let's figure out, you know, we have this sort of stronghold in this mid-market today. And being everywhere meant down market and then up market and meant not just these early adopting tech companies, but all industries as well, right? The manufacturing company, the CPG company, the services company should all be using this thing. So it became an exercise of sort of like, all right, well, let's, let's do the chess game of what keeps us from going down market? What keeps us from going up market? What keeps us from going into all these verticals? And first of all, when we thought down market, well, hold on, the product actually already worked great down market. We just weren't selling at a high velocity motion yet so that it wasn't a really highly economical type of sale for us to do to sell or service to yet. Well, great. If that already works well with the product as is today, let's go build a velocity team to go after it, right? So um, Lauren McGuire, uh, Lori Jimenez really spearheaded like folks that came out of that box sales leadership team under Leslie Young, Jim Herbal, and others. And they just lit it up of uh, building an efficient sales and success motion to go service this fast velocity business. When we looked up market, right, the product actually worked pretty darn well up until a point. Not the largest businesses on the planet that have all sorts of weird policies and customizations you got to do, but it was actually working pretty darn well, even at the early days up until several thousand employee companies that were spending probably 50 million a year on travel. And so we said, all right, well, let's not go too big and spend the time selling to people that the product wasn't quite ready for, but let's actually go to that next tier up market and build a team against that and be really disciplined around what types of sales cycles we get into and don't. And then use that team to start to learn, ah, the next tier looks like this. They're going to want this customization. They're going to want this type of security control. They're going to want this kind of admin tools or manager tools or reporting. They're going to want these types of integrations or global inventory of travel because that's 
sort of the, the key places that these large companies tend to play. But it was really about trying to sequence out the different order of those efforts so that we're not trying to do the thing where it's like, okay, be everywhere all at once. You know, not just a great movie, but a terrible business strategy. The other piece was like, okay, how do we go different industries, right? And that was really an early adopter to sort of early majority mainstream conversation. And we had a, a, a great you know, product and marketing leadership team under Matt Smith and then Megan Eisenberg, who I'm a huge fan of, around, all right, well, wait a second. If the, the premise right now in the early days was here's a really cool Netflix for travel, it looks amazing, your travelers will love it, and you'll save some money if you manage it well. That doesn't resonate with a CFO. It doesn't resonate with that true economic buyer. That's, it resonates with a traveler. It might resonate with an HR manager. It might resonate with a finance manager. But how do we actually turn this into, similar to MuleSoft, a message that actually the person who actually controls the bigger purse strings cares about? And uh, it was funny because at, at the time, you know, MuleSoft had recently IPO'd, as you mentioned. A lot of this like, inspiration came from conversations that we had had with our CFO, Matt Langdon there, who we had IPO, we were increasing growth. I think the goal was let's go grow 70% year over year. Meanwhile, our T&E spend had more than doubled, right? And Matt sort of pulled us together and said, hey, hey folks, we have a problem here because we're a public company and we can't just double this T&E spend to grow the business 70%. And we sort of looked at him and said, Matt, no, it's okay. We're salespeople. It takes money to make money. Like, leave us alone, you know? And Matt sort of said, no, you don't get it. T&E is the second largest line item in the company after payroll. And this is an enterprise software company, so plenty of travel involved. If we don't fix this, we don't have a company, at least not the kind of company we all want to be in. Oh, that's important. And so again, wait a second, how do we go fix it? Everybody, you know, save money and let's go send the head of business analytics to try to map out in Tableau all the different spend coming in to concur and then figure out where it's coming from. So Sandeep Madura ran business analytics. He's at Everlaw, open us at Everlaw now, did this big exercise to try to suck in all the receipts from Concur. And we still got to like, you know, 80% accuracy. And again, all that accuracy was like backwards looking at the last six months, not forward looking. And so that was like the aha. It's like, oh, hold on. Instead of this cool Netflix for travel thing that travelers love, how about it's a better online travel solution that if travelers use it, the CFO gets real visibility in real time around who's using it, who's not, who's in policy, who's not in policy, and can better visualize and manage this second largest light item of the budget. That's a strategic tool the CFO care about. And again, with the way that Navans moved towards payments and expense, now they basically captured like all the spend on a corporate card or virtual card at the point of the sale where they can apply policy and then bump it up against the, uh, the, the guardrails of what people should, shouldn't, shouldn't be doing. So it's a whole different level now. But even back then, there was that powerful narrative of, ooh, that's a story that doesn't go to tech early adopters. That goes to a CFO in any industry who cares about her business and running a tight ship. So that was sort of the aha to try to bring that narrative into that sort of business value world that could take us to the mainstream. Uh, again, it sounds easier than it was. There's so many people at the table for that, you know, that played out over, over quarters. Uh, but it, that was sort of the journey of down, up, broad, um, and obviously international as well as we were uh, trying to build that thing. Yeah. And so you've had a tremendous career, right? You've worked at some of the most legendary companies in Silicon Valley. And on the surface, it seems very positive, right? But I'm curious, like, how are you able to scale yourself? Because you went from like working at Facebook, high growth company, but a pretty big company to kind of just being a big tech exec at these B2B companies. And so can you talk about that journey of scaling yourself? And were there any tough moments for you sort of personally along the way? Thank you. That's very generous of you. Um, I don't go home and have my kids call me a big-time tech exec, so I'll take that But you are. But you are. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because oftentimes it's easier to look back than it is to look forward. And when I think about every one of those moves and, and the plenty of mistakes that I've made as well, there's a lot of learning involved. And I'll say this, my, my old CEO and years ago, Ken Fisher, used to say, it's better to be lucky than it is to be good. And I would say that, you know, for every single move, that I've tried to make them my, my career, I think at the time, it didn't really look like a, ah, aha, this is the natural next thing to do at the time, right? When I left the investment industry to go to Facebook, every other social media company before it had gone kaput. Uh, and so 
who's to say that wasn't going to happen at Facebook? And my mom was telling me, don't do it. And, and meanwhile, I knew I wanted to get exposure to tech at a top tier tech company and be able to watch, hopefully, an industry transformation if it played out. Um, the move to MuleSoft, similarly, you know, my mom was like, don't do it. I think you'll hear a similar refrain here. You're leaving this, you know, top tier tech company to go to some random company that's been around for 10 years and maybe is on an IPO path, but maybe not to go back from running field sales teams to like SDRs and inside sales. What was the goal of it? And just to be really clear of like what I was hoping to get and learn and the experiences I wanted to have so that I can work on completing myself and, and getting those experiences. And even with trip actions, you know, hey, leaving a post IPO company that's still scaling and selling off to Salesforce for six, seven billion dollars, like, you know, would you rather be an SVB at SVP at Salesforce or the CRO of a random company that nobody's ever heard of? Uh, for me, I thought, you know, one, I love travel. Two, I had a lot of faith in the, the vision and, and the strategic mind of, uh, of Ariel and Yon and that leadership team. And, you know, thought, you know what? At some point, I want to learn an early stage software company. Let's give it a shot. And, uh, and if it doesn't work out, you know, I can always go back and do something else. So I think there, at every point, there were a lot of mistakes and screw ups along the way. And, certainly learnings that I've had from, from not doing the right thing. But, you know, I, I tend to think about careers as long things. And over time, as long as I'm still learning new things and, and reflecting and growing as a human, as a professional, hopefully that's, you know, the name of the game, right? So by the end of it, hopefully I'll, I'll be able to look back and say, hey, I, I grew, I had some impact, I created some impactful and, and memorable teams. And, you know, that's really the goal, but we'll see. Ask me in 10 or 20 years and I'll tell you if that happened. We, we can record this again in 10, 20 years if I'm still <laughs> doing this, you know. <laughs> Along with the yeah. New York Times from today. Yeah, I love it. No, I mean, I think it's it's great career advice for anyone is like, you know, follow your learning path and look for jobs based off, I think, where you see the most opportunity to learn whatever is most interesting to you. And I think that's that's great advice for, for yeah. anybody who's listening to And this. it doesn't have to stay the same all the time, right? Yeah. You might learn and go, oh, I really don't like this yeah. thing. And I need to be back doing this other thing. But with that method of successive approximations, hopefully you can at least cut out the types of things that don't bring you energy with every new transition. And now you're the CRO of Everlaw, which uh, you sell to law firms and government agencies. Um, and corporations. And corporations. Okay. Um, what's it like selling? And maybe I'm, I'm thinking about this wrong, but like, do you sell to more traditional sort of old school industries or is it sort of to everyone? How do you think about kind of the sales motion at Everlaw today? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So Everlaw, you know, in the spirit of learning and growing, I've never worked in a vertical SaaS company till now. And um, what attracted me to the company is you have this, you know, massive industry, this, the practice of law that is so in, deeply embedded into our society and culture, right? Down from watching Law and Order to the stuff I read on CNN about a special master digging into ex-president's uh, documents. Like it's so deeply embedded into to everything we see and do. Yet it's been so old school in the sense of technology adoption and the risk aversion and wanting to make sure that, you know, everything feels safe and right before moving forward on technology. We have a really interesting time in our space because, you know, with LLMs and AI, the idea of how AI and technology will revolutionize the practice of law and make the practitioners far more efficient than ever before, that's a more exciting time in our industry now than, than, uh, than ever before, right? Um, our sale is really interesting because we have three sort of key types of segments that we sell to. We sell to the government. So the Department of Justice is a customer of ours, right? The state attorneys general, the team out of DC that, uh, that Alan Lawrence runs under Josh Buckler's team uh, is a very unique team in that they need to understand the buying cycles and who's involved and how decisions are made and how contracting gets done. We have sort of our core legal sales team that sells to law firms, big and small. And they need to understand how partnerships work and how decisions are made in a world where there isn't necessarily a CIO or CTO who's going to, you know, aha, it's my responsibility to buy technology. Here you go. Right. And that partnership is driven by profitability and anything they invest in technology is money out of their pockets at the end of the day. How do we help frame to them that this is not just a necessary tool for doing litigation investigation, but that's actually going to fundamentally help them run a much more effective and profitable practice, whether it's closing new business better, whether it's 
working far more efficiently, whether it's just finding better outcomes when they're trying to figure out what happened in a case. And then finally, we have corporations who, you know, the GC is there thinking, hmm, well, I pay, you know, $1,000, $2,000 an hour for outside counsel. If I'm doing discovery, if I have an HR matter, I have an IP matter, it's actually really strategic to own some of those capabilities internally so that I can actually better understand what's going on in my business before I outsource it. And to be able to do so actually helps me operate a lot more cost-effectively too, right? So there's like different sort of framings of where value is derived, different structures around who the decision makers are and, and, and decision process. And so for us, it becomes a question of how many different bets can we be taking at any given time and resource well so that we can be effective and successful in those bets. And so for us, it's less about, say, global markets. We have a U US and a UK EMEA market, but we're not doing a large, broad global play, but more about how we can think about how to sell and service uh, and deliver really effectively for these three pretty discrete types of organizations and buyers and users. So that's really the, the name of the game in that world is how do we actually make sure that we can take on enough surface area where um, we can still be successful at driving a strong sales, customer adoption, value process for that buyer instead of the tempting thing to do, which is like to spread ourselves really thin and have a few people running at a lot of things. For an earlier stage startup, a lot of value to do that, to at least map the world and figure out where the places to really spend time are. Uh, in a company at our stage, late stage private, really valuable to be really disciplined in making sure that our core business is running and running really effectively end to end, and then being able to start to fund the bets outside of that, right? Yeah, super interesting. And obviously t selling in today's market is really tough. Uh, budget scrutiny is high. Sales cycles are getting longer. Um, I'm mm. curious how you sort of coach your team through this market and maybe what advice do you have for other sales leaders who are, you know, kind of dealing, dealing with all the dynamics today? Yeah, it's a, it's a great yeah. question. I was just sitting with uh, a number of uh, startup founders and heads of go-to-market last night uh, with uh, New View Capital. Great, great group. And you know, a lot of folks had shared, wow, you know, our pipeline is slowing, our sales cycles are lengthening, our win rates are decreasing, it's harder to get budget, right? Almost anybody selling anything is saying that right now. And you know, in this environment, it's, it's very natural. You know, internally, our CFO Scott is saying, hey, if it's not business critical, why are we using it? Why are we paying for it, right? Um, or forcing us to get leaner because, you know, that's the current climate, as it is for most of most companies in America and beyond. So what that means is, all right, well, the sale of look at this amazing product, it's awesome, it's going to sell itself. All of a sudden, that sale around how amazing the product is, the features, the benefits might not work as well. So what I found or what we found in this market and what we found at Trip Actions um, or Devon and when travel dried up during the pandemic was, hey, if we don't have a very clear line to the economic buyer themselves or himself or herself, that sale you cannot consider as getting done, right? Number two is if you don't have a very clear articulation of what it is an understanding of what it is that that company cares most about right now, what are the biggest things that the CEO, the CFO, your economic buyer is thinking about at night? what keeps them up, what they're afraid of, and what they're ambitious about. And if you can't go connect your, what you do very directly to those one or two things, it's not three or four, those one or two things in a way that is credible and quantifiable, you should not expect that sale to get done. So what does that mean? That means the challenge becomes, how do we make sure our narrative and our product, first of all, does our product actually do something that is meaningful and valuable and differentiated and drives business results for the buyer that we care about. If not, let's go figure out how to make sure it does that and how to make sure the buyers that we're targeting, the personas, the ICPs that we're targeting, there's a really strong product market, product customer fit. Once we know that's the case, then let's make sure our narrative actually resonates with that, that we've built those quantifiable data points um, that we can show them, that we can build out for that client specifically of the that kind of value that will drive for them in the criteria or the currency that they care about. 
And then let's make sure that we are building strong champions who will get us to an economic buyer so that we can have that conversation directly. To me, if you don't have those elements in your sales process right now, or actually in your go-to-market and your overall product market or where you're focused as a company, things are going to be hard. Now, that's not a doomsday scenario. It's not a, you know what, if you don't have those things, just fold up shop and stop doing it. It's just a challenge to say, how do we go find those things in the go-to-market, in the product, in the sale that we're looking to execute today or go get us there, right? And Navon and Trip Actions, you know, the idea of, hey, let's go help you do corporate travel much more effectively, all of a sudden sounded really tone deaf in March of 2020. Wait a second, you want telling me to travel more? Or are you insane? Do you want to get me killed? Right? But the idea of, hold on, do you think travel will come back at some point? If no, then we probably shouldn't be talking. If you think it will at some point, yeah, let's talk. Great. Is travel when it was big, when it was happening or when it will come back? Is that a meaningful part of the budget that you want better visibility on? If yes, great. Let's keep talking. And if those things are true, then let's actually use this time when you're not traveling to actually do a thorough review of the program so that you're not trying to change, you know, build the plane while you're flying it, that you're actually building the plane while it's in the hangar and you have this unique opportunity to go make sure it's built right. Right. So that's a narrative example of why the worst time is actually the best time to be looking at something. And oh, by the way, speaking of the product pivot, hey, you might not be looking to do a lot of travel, but we have this fintech product. We have this spend management expense solution. Are you still having people now work from home and expense lunches or expense trainings or expense equipment? Do you have policies around that? Let's make sure we're helping you manage that spend really well, because guess what? In this COVID environment, we don't know what's going on and what will happen. So it's more important now than ever to manage that side well, right? So a product pivot, a product acceleration that really played to how do we actually speak to something that's really resonating with the same buyer right now that complemented the previous narrative. So that was really how I think in practice that playbook sort of works out. I'd love to end today's conversation a little more forward-looking, talking about AI, because I know Everlaw has been investing quite a bit into AI. And I'm just curious what you think about kind of the the current AI wave. And you don't have to speak specifically about Everlaw. You can if you want. Yeah. But like, how is AI going to just impact sort of enterprise software generally? And sort of how do, how do you sort of think the future might play out? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I'll preface this by saying I am not an AI expert. I am not a technologist. Um, I'm a, a business leader. Um, but from what I've seen and, and having seen, you know, a number of industries um, sort of transform or go through this period of massive shift, you know, I'll, I'll speak specifically to the legal industry because there was a Goldman study uh, a few weeks ago around industries that will be most disrupted in terms of jobs that can re- be replaced from AI. And I think out of like 15 or 20 industries, it was like office and admin work and then legal. And the two are actually pretty closely related. So I'll lump them together. Um, but when I think about legal as an industry, right, um, historically, it's been very much driven around people. It's a professional service industry. You have people who have expertise who can help you, you know, research what happened with the evidence, help put together a case, put together a deposition. Uh, and all those require humans who are using their JDs, their expertise to go comb through evidence, to go prepare uh, a deposition sort of right up. And when I think about the role of AI there, right, we've been historically already using AI to shrink the haystack to give people sort of pockets of, oh, if you're interested in this, you might want to look here. These pieces are linked. Let's shrink the haystack. But when we think about what's possible with AI, the idea of, you know, in the future, do we use a tool like Everlaw to help think through, well, hold on, there's a lot of stuff going on here. Can we more, can you simplify it for me so I can quickly understand what's, what's happening in this document, right? Or wow, you know, there's a future world where we might say, hey, what's, what's going on with this mound of evidence? Can you help me figure out a few of the themes of whether this is going on or not and how it's substantiated with evidence, right? The possibilities start to get really mind-boggling in an exciting way around the things that we've historically relied on really smart, really experienced human beings to do. Now that we cannot just simplify their lives, but we can actually help do some really heavy lifting for them um, in a way that has only been sort of science fiction in the past. That's the kind of thing that we're looking at as now being possible or very close to possible. Now, obviously, our stance as a company is there are a lot of people that pretty much everyone and their brother and sister are talking about how they are AI-based and 
AI driven, it's really important at a time like this to actually try to separate the wheat from the chaff and the people who actually know what they're doing uh, to align yourselves with versus you know, folks that are just saying, hey, we know AI, trust us, right? There was a famous example in the New York Times just a couple of weeks ago of a lawyer who pulled out ChatGPT and said, hey, write me this uh, lawsuit that I'm going to bring against a major airline. And ChatGPT had some hallucinations and, you know, not through fault of its own, but a fault of the user cited case text that was not accurate or not real. And obviously this lawyer got egg on his face. Now, that's not to say ChatGPT is terrible. It's actually an amazing technology, but we need to implement it and use it in a way that's, that's highly trustworthy and safe and that we can help really empower the users to do really high value things with it versus just, you know, use it in a cavalier way. And that's really our philosophy of thinking about how to implement LLMs and the future of AI as it relates to legal. But we're really excited about um, where the space is going. And as a proxy for most knowledge work, just the things that we're working on in our roadmap give me a lot of optimism about um, what the future of work looks like in the, uh, in the years to come. Well, thank you so much for the, the wonderful conversation, Rich. If people want to follow up with you and find you, what's the best platform for them to reach out? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not super active on, on Twitter, but, but you can find me there at, at Rich Liu. You can find me on LinkedIn, right? That's probably the easiest way to, to catch me. Um, I'm not always super responsive, so I'll provide that, that caveat up front, but hopefully there's some valuable stories. And uh, if I can be valuable to you and the doc team or the community, I uh, would love to, uh, would love to uh, put myself out there. That's a wrap on another episode of Grow and Tell. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform, or find every episode at growandtellshow.com. I'm your host, Alex Krakow. Thank you for listening.